Michael's like one of my favorite storytellers and writers. And that's like, even if the you know stories were removed from his very amazing art. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Making Ways podcast. This season, we're talking to musicians and the visual artists they collaborate with to create iconic album covers, videos, posters, and merchandise that make music so much more than just what you hear. On the show, you're going to learn more about the bands you love, get turned on to new music, and uncover the secrets to great working collaborations and lessons that you can bring into your own creative practice, no matter what you do. I'm your host, Rob Goodman. I'm a diehard music fan, an illustrator for bands, and a creative producer. I'm obsessed with the way visual art and music can combine to make something memorable and moving for our eyes and for our ears. On today's episode, I'm talking to one of my favorite musicians, Sadie Dupuy. She's known for her solo project, Sad 13, and her band, Speedy Ortiz. And I'm speaking with her alongside acclaimed comic book artist and her frequent collaborator, Michael DeForge. Speedy Ortiz started off as a solo project for Sadie that quickly grew into a full band experience. Three albums, a bunch of EPs and singles later, the band continues to deliver shattering, jangly indie pop, punctuated by Sadie's pointed lyrics and sweet vocals. Her writing prowess and background as an MFA in poetry at University of Massachusetts at Amherst also led her to release a book of poetry a few years ago called Mouthguard, a book I may have just nabbed one of the last copies of off of Sadie's Bandcamp. Over the past several years, Sadie has been experimenting with a new solo project under her own moniker of Sad 13. Her latest album, Haunted Painting, is a banger, a loud, danceable indie pop gem that is just as personal as it is relatable. In this episode, you'll hear clips of Sadie's music from Speedy Ortiz, like the song Pioneer Spine and Raising the Skate, and Sad 13 tracks like the episode starter, WTD, and closer, Hysterical. Michael DeForge is a celebrated comic book artist with a treasure trove of books, editorial artwork, a gig on Adventure Time as a designer for six seasons, and several collaborations with Sadie for artwork over the years. He's based in Toronto and has been featured in the New York Times, The Believer, Bloomberg, and you can see his work at michael-deforge.com on Instagram and Twitter too. Together we talk all about Sadie and Michael's creative relationship, Michael's work ethic, aesthetic, love for typography, and his vision for the stories he tells. Sadie shares what she loves most about Michael's work, their shared love of comic artwork, and recounts the artwork she created herself for her projects over these years, and the artwork her mother created for her latest album, Sad 13's Haunted Painting. There's so much to get to, so let's kick things off with Sadie and Michael recounting their first time connecting. Hope you enjoy the episode. I went to The Beguiling in Toronto on tour one time and was like, who's your favorite person who makes art locally? And they showed me some of Michael's stuff and I bought a few things and immediately was like, oh my gosh, this is the best person. And so I must have reached out to you just to be like, hey, your work's really cool. Here's my band that has a comics-themed name to give me credibility. <laughs> uh, would you mm-hmm. ever do a shirt? Yeah, because Speedy Ortiz is from uh, Love and Rockets character. Mm-hmm, yep. So you reached out as a fan, and, and Michael, had you heard of the band before? 
I hadn't just I don't I don't keep up with like a lot of music that's new that like isn't specifically from Toronto. But it, I I I really like the band and I like doing gig posters <laughs> and uh I think I remember the two gig posters. Like I remember what they look like. I can't I can't remember <laughs> what cities they were. Did you do posters first? Is that I might have Yeah, I did posters first. They might have been two tour posters actually. That sounds maybe correct. <laughs> Yeah, I also I did want to make sure they were good because it was a comic book name. It can kind of go either way because like if it if like it turned out that Speedy was like a bad band, <laughs> then I'd feel like obligated to not <laughs> to not work with them <laughs> in like solidarity with like Jaime or whatever. So so she reached out and did you listen to the the music first and to like pass the uh, sniff test? Yeah, maybe I should, like shouldn't say this, but like I turned down gig poster <laughs> jobs like if it's for a band that I think is like not. Like it's not a lucrative enough, lucrative enough illustration assignment to like do it for bands that like I don't actually kind of like. So uh, I usually do it for like bands I like or people I like. Does it usually happen that that folks are reaching out to you, or do you reach out to bands sometimes? Oh, it's usually people reaching out to me. Yeah, yeah. And so the first collaboration was a couple of of posters, if I have that right. And then, like, how, how did they come about? Was it just like, say, you said, "Hey, we need a couple posters." Michael, you just did your thing, and it was good to go. Or was there a little more kind of collaboration or any art direction as part of the those initial You're projects? Testing my memory of 2014 right now, because <laughs> <laughs> I really thought that the I'm, I guess you I know you've done a million posters for us, and I feel like I can remember them all, and I'm just probably remembering them out of order. But there was a shirt that Michael did for Speedy that was all dogs spelling out the band name. Oh, yeah. And I remember that. Maybe that was the first assignment. But I feel like there there could have been, maybe there was like a European tour poster like right before that. I can't remember. It's all, (laughs) I I, I thought of Michael when I got your email because I was like, we've done a lot of stuff together. Was it like a, a grass is green tour? Yeah, I think you probably did the grass is green tour and then a Euro poster that was right after that. And then we did a, a tour with Steve Malkmus and the Jicks, and that's when we were selling this dog shirt, which is still one of my, I think, my favorite shirt that, that Speedy's done. And at the end of it, the day after the tour, the Jicks did a KEXP session where he was wearing that shirt, and people were suddenly like, what is this amazing shirt? So I have a, a clear visual memory of the YouTube Stephen Malkmus and the Jicks KEXP session, like driving straight home from Seattle, very hungover the day after a tour. That's amazing. I guess I completely missed out because I saw you on that tour at Slim's in San Francisco. That's where I am. I don't know. The, the merch table is probably way too packed for me to grab a t-shirt. So I'll have to I'll have to find my way to one. But that sounds awesome. That was a great I remember that Slim show. That was fun. It was so fun. Yeah, it was so, so good. And you all sounded amazing. But then I don't think Michael and I met each other until North by Northeast, which would have been a few months later. Yeah, it was a show at the Mod Club, I think, in Toronto. With pissed jeans. Yeah, yeah. And that venue either just closed or is about to close, actually. Oh. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I've said that too much. It's, <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's depressing. Oh, gosh. So posters, T-shirts, and was it always that Michael was just kind of coming up with whatever he wanted, whatever you wanted, Michael, for the band and, and would show it and say to you, would go, yeah, that's great. Or is there ever kind of back and forth around ideas? I feel like I always just like whatever you do. Yeah, I think you gave me a few prompts for like the, I think for both of the, sh- I've done two shirts, right? 
the person eating people. Yeah, I feel like you told me to drop someone eating people, and then and the oh, and like a baby wearing a chain or something. I feel like that was a, a problem. What's the baby wearing a chain? I can't remember if that got printed. I feel like you once told me to draw a baby wearing like a big chain that said Speedy Ortiz, and I drew it. I just remember drawing it, but I don't remember what happened with it. I feel like, like there was some period of time where maybe I was writing foil deer and you were just like working on stuff and wanted prompts and maybe we sent each other some like ideas <laughs> yeah uh sadie sent me a lot of prompts for comics which was very generous of her. i was i was doing a lot of one-page comics at the time yeah and just trying to like work through visual experiments and, and needed good prompts that would be flexible ways to force myself to like experiment with or, or just cycle through visual ideas and just have these like quick things i could bang out and sadie you would just you would just kind of make up something top of mind you thought would be interesting for Michael to draw and, and send it over? I guess I must have. And I certainly can think of a couple times when maybe something that Michael came up with wound up a song lyric that didn't come out for a couple years later. I feel like I put hypnic jerks in a song because of something that you told me about looking them up. <laughs> I feel like I had like trilobites in something because of Michael. So there's a couple things where I look back on songs and maybe don't remember exactly what they're about, but I can remember like, oh, I got this phrase because of this friend. And in quite a few cases, it's Michael. Yeah, I feel like that with with all my writing is that like a lot of it just comes from even even if it's not like formally a prompt, a lot of it just comes from like conversations or like so many comics I, I've drawn just to like make specific friends laugh sometimes, you know, so like there's just inside jokes or or just things that, yeah, come naturally out of conversations. Yeah. yeah. So beyond the posters and the T-shirts, did you did you end up doing any like album artwork or anything like that, Michael? No, I did a tote bag. I did some did I do some lettering. You've done a bunch of random stuff. That I can definitely itinerize. Um, <laughs> Michael only hasn't done album artwork because I don't let anybody else right, do Right, and it. I want to talk about that. Other yeah. than like my mom, who I really annoyingly art directed this time around. But um, what have you done? You've done lettering. You did a logo for Sad 13, which I have on the headstock of a guitar, which is very cool. I think you made it for the Lizzo song. So really, uh, you, made a, you made a logo for a Lizzo single. Um <laughs> What else? Wait, uh, I think when we were working on Foil Deer, actually right before I got on this podcast, my like side hustle this year, now that I can't do 90% of my income, is writing band bios. So I, I was writing a band bio up until I saw your faces. I think they're <laughs> I'm shooting myself in the foot. They can be so boring, and I don't always love reading them, even though I am giving my all to the ones I'm writing yeah. today. But uh, I think I was like, Michael, can you make us a cooler band bio so I don't have to send out like a one sheet? And Michael made this really cool um, comic that the publicist was like, absolutely not. We cannot use this in little <laughs> one sheet. So we put it on a tote bag instead. <laughs> Oh, that's, that's fine. That's fairly. Uh, <laughs> I can't that's remember. Really punk. I can't remember like why that comic exists. I just remember drawing it. So that's that's funny to. It's like be it's reminded. supposed to be the year thirty fifteen or something, and it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask what drew you to Michael's artwork initially, and if you've always been super into comics. Honestly, I'm like less into comics this year than ever before because I I used to always try to find things when I was traveling or on tour. So certainly 
I think just like with collecting stuff in general, I've always liked going into small, very well curated stores like The Beguiling and being like, who's local and really good? And I must have got some issues of Lou's would probably be what they gave me. They're just amazing. Michael's like one of my favorite. <laughs> this is awkward. I feel like look at you and compliment you. Um, <laughs> just like one of my favorite storytellers and writers. And that's like even if the you know stories were removed from his very amazing art. And I think like a lot of the stuff, I don't know if we have like the same favorites that aren't contemporary, I guess. My mom got me into some cool like indie comics when I was kind of young because I really liked all the like Archie comics stuff when I was little and she wound up getting me. Yeah. The like Peter bag, Gilbert Hernandez kind of Josie and the pussycats type comic. And from there I got into love and rockets and a lot of other stuff. And I think like probably for someone who's actually in comics, I have like very mainstream indie comics taste, but I tend to keep up with like the drawn and quarterly and fanographics and Koyama press stuff. And so it's, funny that I didn't encounter Michael earlier than going into the store. Although maybe that was like around the time of Ant Colony. Yeah. Like I, I would have just been starting out or not start, you know, I, I, I was like, I didn't have many books at that point. I don't think, I don't remember like my timeline, but 2014 feels like a long time really ago. Long. So. <laughs> 2020 feels like a long time ago. I know. It feels like a decade. I think like part of why we worked together a bunch too, and also just like got along as like friends yeah. is that we did, we did have like a fair amount of, of overlapping taste, even like outside of alt comics specifically, like conversations about like poetry or like anime or uh, like, I, I do remember putting a lot of anime imagery into speedy posters intentionally. Yeah. So. And Nashville. We like a lot of like <laughs> yeah. soap opera TV in common, like teen soaps. <laughs> Yeah. Michael, in terms of your your artwork, I love your work and I love the storytelling. You've been so prolific over the past was like 10 years, 10 books or, or or something like that. Yeah, that sounds about right. That's yeah. wild. It's incredible. <laughs> Every time I think you've already put out like two books this year, there's a like a third one coming. Well, I'm curious. I've seen like more recently a lot of advocacy, a lot of social justice coming through in, in your work. Is that something you feel has always been there or a part of your voice that's been developing or you've been putting out there more recently? I always think of art as like being political, but not all art is politically useful. So I think anyone reading my comics could like suss out my politics from them, but I'm not sure how effective they'd be as like agitprop. When I'm able to, I like producing pieces of political propaganda or political education. And I, I tend to find that it's common that like if you're organizing with any group, movements need artwork. And if you're a person who knows how to like make posters, you're you're gonna get you're gonna end up making posters for for whatever whatever needs doing. So Yeah. And what are you working on right now? I know you were on Adventure Time for many, many years. Are you still working on Adventure Time or is that is that moved on? Right now, Adventure Time itself ended a few years ago. Okay. But yeah, I was, I was a designer on there for six seasons. But right now they're doing all these like HBO specials. Right. And I've contributed to three of them. And it's sort of like, I haven't seen the episode, so I don't actually know what I contributed, like what parts of it make it on air until it's finished. Yeah. But in one of them, the BMO special, I did a lot of concept art, like uh, just a lot of concept art. And then... In the Marceline special Obsidian, I only did lettering. I just did like the end credits and the title lettering. And then there's a third one coming out. And 
I both can't say what I drew for it, and I have no idea if they're going to use it. So it'll be a surprise for me when it airs. That's amazing. And speaking of lettering, since you brought it up, you have such a unique style across all of your work, and it can vary you know, within the same project or across projects. And I'm curious about your approach to lettering and typography. I know you hand letter everything, but what inspires kind of the uniqueness that you bring to every project? And does, does any part of you like develop these lettering styles separately, or is it all kind of in the moment as you're working on comics? It's just something that's come naturally. Yeah, I love lettering and I, I pay a lot of attention to type. I, like it's just something that I have like large amount of respect for that craft and and have tried to letter in a diverse sort of like try to I like when I started out I was trying to like do metal lettering and trying to teach myself like different types of sign lettering and things like that. But yeah, I, I think part of it is just when I first started really like drawing seriously, I guess, in high school, I was starting doing gig posters. And I think most of what my focus on was was on gig posters and not comics. And it was before I had any idea that like I could pursue this as a career. I was just drawing posters so I could get into shows for free. Around that time, one group from pr- pretty associated with like the Montreal noise scene called Seripop, who now do like fine art, but, but at the time were known for their posters were everywhere. And they their lettering was great and it was super illegible. And it like taught me a lot about lettering and how illegible lettering is like actually really great and effective. So I, I think of them as like my primary lettering influence. When you say illegible lettering, describe to me what that means. Like actually it's just the form and, and it, it's going to take the viewer a long time to figure out what the meaning is. Yeah, I'm interested in like art and design that like, invites people in and i think of illegibility as like being effective for that and it's the same with like comics pages or or music that might be a little inaccessible at first or like books or poetry where it it takes some time to figure out or it teaches you how you're supposed to read it like there's a an art chantry quote who was like another gig poster and, and sort of music designer and um i forget the exact quote but it's like a good poster doesn't just bring people in it like keeps cops out <laughs> and i think of that too like if if there's design that is like so garish or so illegible that like you're not interested in trying to decipher it you probably shouldn't come to that concert it's like like metal lettering being the best ex- extreme example of that where if you see a metal logo and you're not interested in trying to like understand what it says or you can't understand what it says like maybe it's not for you and that's fine right know? right so. you're you're interested in people who are wanting to go deeper, who are interested in beyond kind of the surface level and and they want to decode and they want to be a part of whatever message you're trying to share. You don't necessarily need it to be easily digestible. You want it to be thoughtful, thought-provoking. Yeah, or, or it's like, an, I, th- I just think of it as an invitation. Like, come read me, <laughs> I guess, yeah. Yeah, and Sadie, you brought up Haunted Painting and I love the cover art for it. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about the backstory of your mother doing that artwork. And let's hear a little bit about that horrible art direction that you uh you <laughs> you like forced her through. And well, and then I, I want to get more into all of the artwork that you've made over all these years for Speedy Ortiz albums and EPs and Sad 13 too. Yeah, I mean, I think me being a pain in the ass to my mom is exactly because I have been doing my own artwork for so long. I was in a band prior to Speedy for a long time, and my like primary bandmate at some point was like, I like when bands 
have a unifying aesthetic through all their discography. If you just made the art, that would be so much easier. And I, I never really wanted to work on the art for that project. But as soon as that project acrimoniously <laughs> split apart and I was doing this home recorded solo project, which is the start of Speedy RTs, it was almost not like an FU, but it was like, oh, you think it'd be great if a project had like a unifying aesthetic? Let me do it for my better band that I'm starting now. As I mentioned, my mom got me into comics and she's an amazing artist who has done all kinds of, of different projects and mediums through my life. But yeah, I, I, when I was little, I wanted to be a cartoonist and I was, as Michael mentioned, well, you didn't specifically say I was super into Sailor Moon, but like that was like my my main interest from ages, you know, seven to 13. So I have notebooks and notebooks of like homemade fanfic manga where I was, you know, just drawing. Yeah, I was making my own comics as a little kid. I didn't wind up really pursuing any kind of formal art making practice, but the few times I get to do it were for when friends would be like, make me a show poster. And then once I was doing the solo project, I was like, yeah, this is a great excuse to spend more time doing visual art because I'm doing so much other stuff. If I don't have like a deadline excuse, I just won't ever do it. So I've done all the speedy and sad 13 stuff. But then for this record, I just had this, this very like specific idea of a painting I wanted to do an, an homage to. And I, that's been true in the past, but usually I'm fine with it being filtered through my like very novice artist technical abilities. But this was an homage to a, a painting that's by Franz von Stuck. It's like just a very beautiful oil painting, and that is not <laughs> within my abilities, but it's very much my mom's wheelhouse. So I uh, kind of not steamrolled her through it, but I had a very specific thing I wanted to accomplish. And I think she also is very used to working independently. So it was, it was an interesting, interesting project for both of us. And I think we're both really happy with it. Sadie, it's such a beautiful painting. I love the cover. And I'm wondering, like, how long did it take your mom to make it? How long was the process of developing the artwork? I want to say it took her like three months. I saw the original painting that it's based on, which is a portrait of a dancer, early 20th century dancer named Saharit, who stuck painted like three or four times. But this particular painting is the one that I was like just immediately entranced by and wanted to somehow inception myself into. I hate inception. I don't know why that was my <laughs> verb. We can we can uh, like overdub it <laughs> yeah. with like Josie and the Pussycats, which I know you're a big that fan sounds of. Great. So. Yeah, just put it in a Josie and the Pussycats sample over. Yeah, just a reference. Inception. So I saw it in June of last year. Took a photo of it for reference. That I feel like the pictures I was finding online of it didn't capture it as well as my like photo did maybe just because the lighting was very different experiencing it in person, but there was like a, a extra layer of darkness to it that this photo had. So I, I named the album haunted painting after this stuck painting that my face haunted <laughs> incepted haunted painting. Uh, didn't happen for a few months after that. So I think I, I came to my mom pretty shortly after that with the idea for it. One of the reasons I wind up doing so much stuff like myself is because I'm a really bad procrastinator when terms, especially if it involves asking for any help. 
So if there's a project that requires another person, I will be like thinking about asking them for three months and then uh, <laughs> like not do it until there's suddenly a severe deadline, which I'm sure Michael has experienced probably many times for me over the years. But yeah, this, I think this, my mom is probably kind of similar. And this painting, it literally got finished, photographed and laid out within like a week after she finally finished it. So I think she probably started it in like February and finished it in like May, I guess, early May. So just about three months. Wow. And what, what's behind the procrastination on, on collaborating or asking for help? I'm curious. I have ADHD. <laughs> and that, that, that straight up like impacts it or your, uh, I think so. I think that's the excuse. Like I have a lot of <laughs> ideas for projects going at once and then taking the like concrete steps to see them through doesn't always follow them in the, the logical sequence. So yeah, if I can just do it myself, then I can stay up for five days and finish it rather than having to impose the like very real deadline on someone who's better at planning their time than I am. And, and what goes into those album covers for, for speedy, like, in terms of conceptualizing, in terms of idea generating, what's your creative process going into the art making process for the albums? It's pretty time intensive for me. And I think often I'm just physically not, before this year, I haven't been home more than a couple weeks at a time since, probably since before Michael and I met each other. Before this year, I had like no idea how to do any art digitally. I'm used to being able to spread all my stuff out, make a huge mess for a few weeks at a time. Other than the the front cover painting, I did the rest of the artwork for for haunted painting, and there was a lot of sort of intensive stuff for that too. But I do a lot of stuff that's inspired by embroidery, and I do a lot of sewing, and that can be kind of time intensive. There's just a lot of materials that I'm trying to figure out how to make work in a way that will translate to whatever scan or photo I wind up getting of the physical thing. Like I'm actually, <laughs> I have my video turned off. I'm sitting in front of the gatefold for Twerpverse that I wound up having to make like three different physical versions of because I used a certain kind of fabric for the backdrop. Usually I just make the, the LP layout stuff and it's slightly larger than it will appear in print. And we're able to sort of translate that to like cassette and CD and digital and for whatever reason, the fabric I did this on just did not translate. So I wound up having to like scan all the individual components and then like re-sew every single one oh for a cassette gosh. layout, for a CD layout. So it's like I, I kind of just dive into it for a few weeks and see what comes out. And usually that can translate to something that can change sizes and formats, but not always. And then for, for this album, generally I'm just doing all the artwork totally alone in my apartment and making a huge mess to the annoyance of whoever I'm living with. But I had this idea to do haunted painting as like a, like a gallery, like a fake gallery. I made text art for all the lyrics. I think I was texting with you, Michael, when I was doing it. Cause I was like, I only have like my crappy printer, but I want to somehow make it look like it was silk screen. So I was running like individual print layers through a couple different times, different colors. I produced all these different art components and wanted to have them hung on like a fake gallery wall and photographed that way with like a lighting as if it was a gallery. So, you know, it wouldn't just look like a photoshopped. I don't know why I hate making any digital art. Of course, you know, by the time this stuff was ready to photograph, we were in the middle of the pandemic and it was May. So there was very little understanding of like whether there was any safe way to be in a room with a person. So I like 
drove to my mom who lives five hours from me, picked up the painting from outside, drove it back down to Philly same night, left it on the sidewalk for another friend who brought it into her gallery to photograph with all the like art components. My procrastinating and planning and collaborating wouldn't have made any difference trying to do any collaborative project in May of 2020. Yeah. Anyway, that's my long spiel about haunted painting. I have all the frames in my basement. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, is the painting hanging in your in your house? I brought the painting back to my mom's because I don't have I, my apartment is too tiny to hang. It's kind of huge. <laughs> is it? Is it really big? It's pretty big. I wish I could gauge sizes, but <laughs> it's big. And then when you're working on the Speedy Ortiz uh, album designs and things like that, are you bouncing ideas off of people, or are you just kind of going with what you feel most represents the music? Uh, yeah, it's just whatever I want to do. Yeah. And similar to this, like generally I kind of have the name for what it is before I do the artwork. And sometimes the name is taken from something that has like a visual component that I want to represent. So that can kind of dictate what direction. Yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And Sadie, with with your projects, I find it really interesting that a lot of these projects start as individual self-solo projects, like Speedy Ortiz and Sad 13, and then they gradually turn into bands and kind of bigger organisms. Do you think that's just kind of a natural progression of a creative project? Or like, talk to me a little bit about how your projects tend to evolve into collaborations. I guess it's whatever is suiting the material. Like the Speedy Ortiz as a project started really as like a home recording exercise. So it wouldn't have been a band just by nature. It was like me taking inspiration from stuff where people just lock themselves in a room and do everything. And you can hear in the early stuff that I like really didn't know what I was doing with recording or production. But I just wanted to see if I could and sort of like reconnect with being a 15-year-old with a four-track And then wanting to play shows, I just, well, actually, one of the very few times I've done it was Michael and I did a a tour together. Um, Was it on Styx Angelica? Were you promoting that? Yeah, I think it must have been Styx Angelica. Yeah. I can't stand playing solo. It makes me so uncomfortable for whatever reason. I think partially because even the stuff that I play solo is like so multi-tracked that it just feels completely wrong without at least a few parts represented. So I did play solo on tour with Michael, which was really fun. But mostly that we did a lot of karaoke was the fun part. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's why it winds up being not my solo thing. Like, and honestly, I I live with my partner who's also a musician and he's struggling a lot harder with the like creative downsides of the pandemic than I am because he's really used to like getting in a room with people to play and arrange and like feed off each other's energy. I do a lot better when I can like, be unselfconscious and just no one has to like see me. But in wanting to present that on stage, it kind of grows into more collaborative stuff. And I think stage presentation is obviously quite different than recording anyway. Yeah. And what was the tour like together for you two? 
Michael, do you play music as well? I sometimes have, but this tour was just me reading. And then, yeah, Sadie did music or and, and poetry and sometimes both. And sometimes just reading, maybe, for one or two of the events. I can't remember. Some combination of stuff. Yeah, that was really fun. I love that. I that was like, uh, That was great. That's really fun. And Sadie, were you also reading from Mouthguard, or, or was it uh, just around music? It was some of the stuff that wound up in Mouthguard, but it was before, it was like a year before that book was published. And speaking of poetry, I love your poetry, Sadie. Are you thinking about another collection in the future? I do have a second manuscript ready. I don't have a, a home. Well, not ready, but it, it could use an, a great editor and I'm in search of one. That's a funny, honestly, what you're talking about, like, or when I'm talking about my hesitancy to like collaborate on cover art, that was like my first taste of not just getting to make all the decisions myself. And like, as you noted, Michael is amazing at lettering. I am not, but I make like fonts for all, I make like font sets for all of my albums. So it was really a difficult exercise in letting go to have a publisher like working with me on layout and being like, here are your three font options. I'm like, okay, well, here are my 50 fonts that I like more. I'm just, I'm pain in the ass. (laughs) (laughs) So did it feel like a good collaboration or did it feel like a little more like battle-ish? Both. In the end, I'm really happy with the cover art and layout choices that we made. The book was published by Grandma Press, which no longer exists, but the whole concept was a publisher within like an arts foundation, and the poets had to use art from their collection. And I think I was such a pain. They wound up specially photographing some sculptures in the collection, like sort of based on how I wanted to present them. And then they like had to, they folded like right after my book came out. So I could say it was my difficulty that caused that, but I don't think it was. (laughs) I was looking to get a physical copy and I was having a little bit of trouble. Well, it like sold out immediately and then they folded. So theoretically they got sold to Black Ocean and another really great publisher, but we haven't done a second printing of it yet, and we don't have rights to the artwork for the first. So all that pain for a thousand copies that are gone. But I have a couple. I found some personal copies when we switched merch warehouses this year, so there are some on Bandcamp. Okay, all right, that's great. Good place to go and get some uh, exclusive last copies. Michael, in terms of collaborations on on your end, what do you feel like makes a good creative collaboration? And you know, have you worked on? A bunch over the years, or are you mostly just putting your own work together in in the books? Yeah, mostly solo. Like the the extent that I have collaborated with people, it's usually because it's with friends, like with Sadie. But then, like the cartoonist here, Patrick Kyle, he's someone who I've I've worked with probably the most, and even that, it's like not a lot. Like I've worked with the most in that, like we've made a lot of posters together and, and stuff like that. But uh, comics is like pretty solitary, and, and 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 animation. There's a lot of collaboration, but with that it feels a little different because my role in the animation work I've done is like more of a a cog, you know, like I'm the design person. So I'm kind of just like happy to be told what they need for me and then try to provide that. It's less responsibility than really two people having equal say in something and negotiating that. Because yeah, I've done it a little bit with friends, but I'm mostly just used to, to working solo. Okay. And from the outside, you're incredibly prolific. And I'm wondering, like, what is that process like? Is it something you're mindful of or you're just making and creating? You come up with new ideas and you've got 
a daily, weekly practice to just get things down? I, I do keep a pretty tight routine. I think I like work best if I, I'm kind of hard on myself with scheduling. Like not, not necessarily time, but just like disciplined about when I get up, how much I work and things like that. Like I've been doing it long enough and it, it's my livelihood that like most days it doesn't feel natural. Like it, I think if you're making art, you have the days where it really does feel like I'm just so inspired and I have all this momentum and it's yeah pouring out of me or whatever. But, but most days it is not going to feel that way. But I think most people when they've been at it long enough can um, just sort of muddle their way through a day <laughs> and uh, force something passable out sometimes. And uh, that, that's how it feels most times. It's like, like squeezing out like a little pimple. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what does a typical day look like for you creatively workload wise? How much is working on comics? How much is freelance illustration? It depends on the week. Usually it's about half and half. This month is weird because I, uh, I'm not in my regular studio apartment, but I, I usually wake up pretty early and then try to get a bunch of like commercial work done before lunchtime or something. And then in the evening have, have a bit more space to like just kind of poke at my comics and like my personal work, but it, it depends. With so many projects brewing at any given moment, I was curious how Sadie approaches the context switching between projects, collaborations, and her bands. Here she shares her approach to spinning up new work and making certain a project is put to bed before embarking on what may be next. I think I'm very project-oriented. If I have some big project, that's going to be what I'm working on and thinking about for most of the time until it feels done. The Haunted Painting record, for example, I started to really record it in June of last year and was pretty much doing that all of my free time between tour dates until the end of December of last year. And then most of this year was like, apart from whatever random freelance work I've been lucky to do, all of the assets surrounding that. And it really feels like I have a, a hard time moving on to the next creative project when it's my own project. I can do like work for hire pretty easily and like joyfully. That's, that stuff is in some ways more fun for me because I don't have the control aspect <laughs> problems with it. I just want to help someone make something good when it's my own thing. It's like I have to torture myself until I feel like it's exactly right. So I don't really generally want to do any kind of new writing until I feel like a project is wrapped up. And so that could even mean like, you know, the music videos or often the touring for it. I've been doing a lot of random work for other people, production or playing on. I did um, a couple different like scores for things, which was really cool this year, but it wasn't like my own album project writing. So I think now there's been like a year since I finished up recording Haunted Painting and now I kind of feel ready to start writing a next project because hopefully I'll have consumed enough stuff in the interim and gotten better at little skills from doing work with other people to bring something different to the next project. So often I'm like working really, really hard on the one thing while I'm writing it and kind of creating the world around it. And then I kind of need to like not do anything that's not like not creative. Like I said, I've done all this other random stuff, but I need space between like creative projects that are mine. Otherwise there's not going to be like a growth or a difference or like a clear concept for them. Right. Like time to, it, it sounds like almost 
time to reflect and kind of put it to bed creatively, but also maybe time to like promote it. And you work so hard and poured like so much of yourself into this creative project, like make sure it gets out there and you're supporting it in in all the ways that you can too. There's that. And there's also the fear that if I make something new, that's going to be the thing that I like the most. And I'm going to like resent the previous project for taking me away from working on the next one. So I really try to keep them separate with like a little space to just absorb things in between. Not really a question here, but I I love the new record. I love the new Sad 13 record. It's just like, it's so upbeat. It's so, it, it sounds so beautifully produced. The tunes are so catchy. It's like so danceable. And it's just such an upbeat album to have during this, this time. So thank you for putting together something so, so awesome. Thank you. Yeah. It's been a real joy to, to listen to. And how was it to make the album? Like, do you feel that it was kind of a culmination in parts of your own, like self-producing and writing and evolution? Yeah. I mean, my hope is I just get better at these things as I get older. And this felt like a lot of the things that I learned really from doing the first Sad 13 record. I feel like the Speedy Ortiz record in between was me kind of building on that. I did a lot of that record, recorded at home, and certainly arranged from home. And the thing that was really cool for me on this project was to kind of take that and, and bring it to all these different studios. I, I know I said I like like to leave time between creative projects, and that's like a good thing that I encourage other people to do. Sometimes you can leave so much time that you get like scared of returning to, I don't know if Michael is like, is truly prolific. Like Speedy has slept over on his kitchen floor and we wake up in the morning and he stayed up all night and did all these like amazing pages. (laughs) Like you really do have a kind of incredible, I don't know, work ethic sounds so like office droney, but I just don't sleep a lot. You know, like, that's, <laughs> that's that's really it's not so much work ethic. It's just <laughs> I just like took a lot of time in between because I had life and like mental health stuff that I was kind of trying to parse through. And by the time I was ready to work on new creative stuff, I was kind of scared to and made all these excuses in the same way that I was like, I can't work on visual art because I need to like sprawl out for two weeks and like make a huge mess. Like that's an excuse. I could probably find a way to to work digitally while touring if it was something I really wanted to do, which is not to say I don't want to, but you know, other priorities. I was like making excuses to not work on music. So I, I did this record kind of between tour dates and used that as like an excuse to get to try out all these different studios. So instead of being like, which I had been for many months, like, oh, I don't have time to write an album. Like, there's so much going on tour-wise. It will take so much time in rehearsal to go into a studio for two weeks to do it and so much memorization because I play all these things, like, and I don't want to home record, you know, like, excuse after excuse. So I divided it up in this way where I just did a couple songs per studio in between tour dates, and it was a process that I thought would be kind of stupid, and, and in some ways it was, but it was really cool. And it allowed me to try out a bunch of stuff that I hadn't done before, and now I know that's something I can do for future projects. I liked working on this record this way, even though it was born after a long time of putting it off. Right, right. There's something, I mean, I talk to a lot of creative people and there's something, and I know with with my own work, there's something about the ticking clock that forces creativity to, I don't know, it just sharpens it for me. And a lot of people I talk to, like knowing that something has to get done, there is no more time left to extend this into And I wonder if that played into your ultimately saying like, all right, I just have to do this and break up the recording. Yeah. I mean, totally self-directed. It wasn't like I had some contract to fulfill by a certain date, but it just felt alien to not have like 
made something. It had been in like a pretty long time in between recording. I think Twerp first we did most of in like 2016. And I didn't start recording this album in, until 2019, June. So it's a while. And was there something that needed to happen to unify the album from your perspective after recording all these different studios? Or did you feel like there was a uniqueness to different sets of tracks that made the album as a whole special? Or did you kind of go through it at a certain point and bring it together in a way? I wound up doing final mixes of everything with one of the engineers who'd, who'd worked on the record, which is um, Sarah Tedzin from Illuminati Hotties, who I think is a fan of yours too, Michael. Y'all should hang out. Cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's but, all meet up. Yeah, on the on the first Sad 13 album, which I did pretty much record all, not even at home, at like a tiny bedroom that was the size of a desk that I was subletting, I had the like zany idea, I'll make up for how badly I recorded this by having like different amazing producer will mix every song. And I have like drafts of all of those from all these different people. It sounded like a mess. So this time around, I, I knew I was going to work at different studios. But I think if you, first of all, I'm, producing it so all the pre-production and a, a good amount of the engineering is already happening before I get there and then knowing that I'd have one mix engineer at the end to kind of smooth it out on a single console definitely helped me not to worry about like vastly different drum sounds or anything like that right right that's great and and when did the record label come together for you I'm curious about like why you decided to start that up and what that project has been like for Wax9, the logo, yeah. which was originally drawn by my mom and then redrawn by Michael. So I only have two collaborators, it seems like. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so most of Speedy's records and the first Sad 13 record were on Car Park, a great DC-based indie label that I've been very lucky to work with for the past, probably since right, right before Michael and I became friends. And they have a number of other artist-run imprints. They had Pawtrax, which was run by Animal Collective. Toro Ima runs company records for them. Cute is one of their other imprints. They have a few. Uh, and so we'd kind of talked about me doing one. I can't even really remember why we thought that was a good idea. But Milk Belly were looking for a label. And I was like, I would definitely do an imprint to help Milk Belly. And that's kind of what happened. So it really only came about because I knew they needed a label and I wanted to do whatever I could to like help them have a great label, which I think Car Park is. And the Adam Schlesinger tribute album, how did, how did that come together? It's a beautiful album. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of, of his work. Yeah, uh, I think we actually tried to get Michael to do the artwork for it. Um, oh, wow. Now that I think about it. <laughs> Jesse, who runs Father Daughter Records, and I are both just big fans of many of Adam's projects from Fountains of Wayne to the now often mentioned Josie and the Pussycats soundtrack. That thing you do, you know, he's just an amazing songwriter and producer and arranger. And I didn't really know him, but I had covered Pretend to Be Nice for another compilation that Father Daughter had put out. I think in 2014 as well. Uh, it's all coming back to that year. And he had heard it and, and reached out to me and said that how much he liked it and, you know, that he was a fan now, which for me was huge because I had grown up, like, obsessed with those soundtracks and his band. Yeah. I think from just both talking about how sad we were uh, about his loss, we kind of were like, I'm sure there's a bunch of bands we know who'd like to be involved. And I was lucky that I'd, I've toured with so many of my favorite bands and a lot of them worked with Adam because he was the best. So I just happened to know a few of his former collaborators who 
signed on to do the comp. So that's kind of how that came together. And then Jesse and I did another benefit compilation for like the holiday season that just came out a couple weeks ago. So now we've done two co-released compilations too. And the the poetry journal this year that Michael did the art for the first issue. That's awesome. Yeah. And I love all the illustrations across those, those projects and Michael, of course, your artwork. So was it just going with illustration? Is that, is that, where you tend to go, where your mind tends to, to go, Sadie, if, if it feels fitting? The Adam tribute wound up by Nicole Rifkin, who is another like artist who's very much in the small circle of bands that I'm friends with, I think just from you know all being fans of each other's work. So I think we knew that Nicole was a fan of Adam and reached out, and that's how, how that came together. An artist like Milkbelly, for example, they just like similarly have their own circle of artists that they're friends with and always like know who they're going to get to do their artwork. And it's always really cool. I love the Adam Schlesinger tribute. And yeah, it was such a heartbreak when he, when he passed such an amazing artist. So brilliant. Yeah. It's a huge loss. Yeah. And Sadie, I'm curious about the other projects, really the advocacy work that you're doing in the music industry. And, you know, you're always speaking out, I feel like to advocate for artists and creative people. I'm curious about the the group that you formed to basically have artists get paid what they should be making. Well, this is again, I'm just, because I'm staring at his face, I'm going to make every answer I have all about my friendship with Michael. A lot of the, the people who started the UMA, the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, came out of No Music for Ice, which started a year beforehand, which was kind of inspired and encouraged by Cartoonists Against Amazon letter that, that Michael uh, worked on and had brought to my attention kind of before we started talking about how music work has been impacted by Amazon and how musicians are tech workers and you know shouldn't <laughs> bend our ethical standards to get compensated by tech that powers deportation <laughs> and like human rights atrocities. So a lot of those people, a little less than a year later, went on to start a union that talks about those issues, but a lot of other things pertaining to fair pay and tech. And, you know, musicians are, have been pretty slow to organize on a lot of issues. And we want to see more folks feeling empowered to demand fairness for their work and to view themselves as workers. Yeah. And how, how has that project been going? How, what's the latest in terms of momentum there? It's been really cool. There's a number of different subcommittees. But as a union overall, it's growing quite quickly. I think we started with, you know, maybe we launched, we had a couple thousand signatures where last I checked close to 30,000 with maybe a hundred people who are actively organizing within different subcommittees. So our biggest campaign is the Justice at Spotify campaign, which is just demanding a better and more transparent royalty payout, as well as like an end to basically payola I'm not involved in the streaming subcommittee, but that's sort of been our big galvanizing thing since most musicians have seen 90% of their income go away with touring. And, you know, a lot of consumers are solely relying on on streaming to find new things and we just aren't compensated for it. Yeah, it, it seems like now is the time to rethink the models, especially as artists are losing, as you said, losing access to touring and how all the money was made. I mean, how, how are you seeing other bands and artists deal with this moment? Probably similar to a lot of people who are, you know, it's not like we're uniquely suffering as workers. I think the, the difference is that other people's work is recognized as work. And a lot of people think, you know, music is a hobby. But for a lot of us, it's that 70 to 90% of our income comes from touring. And now we've got to find other ways to 
keep our homes off the like very specialized skills we've developed over however many years. So yeah, certainly, I mean, I'm sure I'm seeing people set up Patreons who didn't have them before or do Bandcamp subscriptions or just in my case, I'm doing more kinds of freelance work than I did in years prior, which is cool. It's like knowledge I can take to other kinds of music I make in the future, but not everybody has home setups. Not everybody can take on writing work and people are accruing like a million streams that doesn't account to for very much money at all. Right. Well, I, I'm, I'm thrilled about the work that you're doing there and yeah, completely believe that that artists need support and should get paid for what they're uh, bringing into the world, which has been so valuable for, for people right now, right? The arts I think is what is getting so many people through at least mentally these really challenging months, great music to listen to, books to read. And Michael, what about the stories you're looking to tell next? Is, is there something kind of top of mind for you that, that uh, you're starting to put down on the page? I'm doing a comic that's like, it's a daily comic. I started earlier during a lockdown called Birds of Maine. And it started because I had another comic that it was about a pandemic and I had been working on it for like a year. But once actual pandemic started, it felt stupid to be drawing. <laughs> So this is like my replacement comic. It's, it's a daily strip. It's very like meandering, and it's about a, a bunch of birds who live on the moon and have their own socialist bird utopia and uh, all this like utopian bird technology that they've developed. So that's what that's what I've been up to uh, most of the year. That's incredible. And where where is that? It's on uh, my Twitter. There's like a long Twitter thread where I post a new strip every day, and then um, on Instagram, it's Birds of Maine comic. Okay. Awesome. And Sadie, I love the collaboration you did with Lizzo, which you mentioned earlier that Michael worked on the, the logo for. That was, that was so awesome and so fun to hear. Are there other people in your mind that it would be fun to work on songs with? I've been saying for a couple years, Tierra Whack, let me play a guitar solo one time. Just, just one guitar solo and I'll be happy. We're neighbors. Why not? I'm definitely, I think, similarly interested in trying to do more like cross-medium collaborative work. I got to do a couple like kind of smaller scoring things this year, but I think it would be really fun to do a score for like a longer project or even to like, I don't know, maybe I'm just regressing because I've been inside of my house for 10 months, but I really liked doing plays when I was younger and I think it'd be really fun to do something like that. I also got to like play in... um an improvised ensemble as like the small orchestra for a play once. It'd be really cool to do some more like improvisatory soundtrack stuff. So again, just a very vague, like be cool to do something outside of just uh, music in 2021, since I can't imagine I will be touring. And what were the soundtracks that you worked on? I don't know if I can say, because they're not, they're 2021 things. I did one thing this year that was like, um, just like a, some instrumental music for a, a PSA that Rebecca Sugar narrated, actually, that Eric Therm created. So that was kind of fun for Never Again Action. And that was kind of like an interesting challenge because obviously it's a very serious campaign. That's something that's you know really important to me. And I think I'm often kind of trying to figure out how to make like glossy, poppy sounding things serve serious subject matter well in like my own work. So to do it in an instrumental way was was kind of interesting. And it'd be fun to do that in like a, a longer scale project. And then I did a, a soundtrack for a podcast, but I don't think it's even been announced yet. So I sh- should not elaborate. <laughs> yeah. 
And what do you think's next in terms of musical projects of your own? Do you imagine once you put Haunted Painting to bed that it'll be speedy songs you, you might work on next? I initially intended that to be the case, but I just don't feel good about people gathering right now. I think of all of my friends, I've been the most like staunchly anti-hang this year. Even the friends who I'm sure are doing it really safely, I just don't even see the point in taking like a 0.05% risk. So I'll probably try to do another Sad 13 project because I can do it on my own. And then whenever we're all totally vaccinated and herd immunized and there's like absolutely no chance of, you know, two people playing music, killing a bunch of other people, then yeah, I definitely want to do another speedy thing. But I'm not rushing in-person stuff until it feels like I'm so nervous that it needs to be overly proven safe. Yeah. Well, I think that's uh, that's amazing and, and, and you know, so caring of, of other people and yourself and uh, thrilling as a fan to know that Sad 13 is, is going to be putting out more songs because I really uh, is so excited about the direction of that project. Thanks. Yeah. Michael and Sadie, thank you so much for your time and sharing so much. I'd loved hearing about your collaboration and more of the work that you've been up to, Michael, and and Sadie as uh, artists and creative people. I'm a fan of, of both of yours, and this was really a treat. Yeah, it was fun to have an excuse to virtually hang out. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. Big thanks to Sadie and Michael for joining the show. It was really fun getting to chat with these two, learn more about Sadie's creative process, what went into the new Sad 13 record Haunted Painting, and learn about Michael's work ethic and how these two became friends and collaborators. I had two big takeaways from this episode. The first is Michael's work ethic. He gets to that drawing board every day and grinds it out. Sometimes it's in a state of flow, and other times he's just doing the work that needs to be done. And with that approach, he's released an incredible amount of artwork over these years. Definitely go and check out michael-deforge.com and get into his stories and his illustrated world. With Sadie, I appreciated how she sees a project through to completion. She fully explores a record that she just put out in every kind of way. She lives in that moment and that process before moving on to something new. She needs that time to really focus in, reflect, and grow before she can move on to new creative terrain. Go check out Sadie's incredible work as Sad 13 and with Speedy Ortiz. Some of my favorite music of the past decade came out of her musical force. I hope you'll subscribe and share this podcast with a friend too. And if you like what you heard, please drop us a review or give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It would mean a ton. Making Ways is created, hosted, and illustrated by me, Rob Goodman. Audio engineering is by Brian Paik at Pacific Audio. You can learn more about the show at makingwayspodcast.com, and you can find us on Instagram at making.ways. I'd love to collaborate on some music and illustration project together, so feel free to reach out, drop me a line. Be well, and see you soon. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>